What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, in for an evening of light entertainment, I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we've got what will be hopefully a very funny and illuminating topic for you. Particularly if you stand too close. Right. So you, you, you yourself you might be yourself. illuminated. Right. Yes, yeah, so with, with a healthy blue glow of the Cherenkov variety. Yeah. Um, because we wanted to ask a rather strange question today. We've talked about traditional vehicles of all kinds, mm-hmm. fossil fuels. We've talked about electric vehicles. We've talked about fuel cell vehicles. Sure. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. All right. That may have sort of an obvious answer. <laughs> Several <laughs> obvious answers yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. But it's also more interesting than you might expect. Why don't we have nuclear-powered vehicles? Now, stay with me for a second. Well, for, first we do, but go ahead. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> we have some. We, we will talk about some. But I got this bizarre image in my head mm-hmm. of a nuclear-powered airplane. Mm-hmm. Now, the airplanes we have today that we fly, you know, they use jet fuel and they use a lot of it. Right. And burning all that jet fuel, of course, comes with some problems we've talked about on the podcast before. I mean, th- those emissions are uh, not without consequences. And, of course, the jet fuel is very expensive and it limits the range of the plane. Uh, yeah, have you to have re- to refuel basically all the time. Yeah. And then we've got all these nice little alternatives like uh, these solar airplanes we've talked about. But, mm. of course... Those are great, not to downplay that at all. Like the Solar Impulse is a very amazing and interesting achievement in technical design. Sure. But it's a very delicate thing. It's incredibly limited in what it can do. Yeah, it it doesn't have a lot of payload capacity. Uh, It you know, it's it's got those problems. It's not generating enough electricity for it to do much else than keep it aloft. So it can't it couldn't be something that we would convert into, say, a passenger jet. Right. So 
What about the possibility of something like a nuclear-powered airplane? Because when you talk about nuclear energy, suddenly there you say, oh, okay, you can generate massive amounts of power. Right. You can have lots of range. Like, you don't need to refuel a nuclear reactor for potentially years, depending on, you know, what your fuel is and how the reactor is designed and things like that. Uh, you could build the kind of airplane that we always imagine as being the perfect solution to a zombie outbreak on Earth. The airplane that never <laughs> has to land. At least a, at least a solution that would allow you to find, you know, a more permanent place to stay because eventually you would run out of food <laughs> so but you would definitely be able to fly around until you were able to discover right. that perfect uninhabited island that is yet uh, completely covered with food generating resources oh well, you could hunt <laughs> birds yeah and you could grow crops on the top of the plane right, right? sure yeah. that would yeah, that yeah, makes yeah. perfect sense uh, I, green my, rooms my, in your airplane my of objection is withdrawn uh <laughs> okay so but uh, extending that beyond airplanes sure. what about airplanes cars motorcycles boats what what is the the possibility of actually creating nuclear powered vehicles and I know you at home are thinking, well, wait a minute, what about all the radioactive waste? Yes, we are considering that, and we're mm -hmm. going to talk about it. But l let's just play with this for a second and see if anything comes of it. Uh, sure, and the wacky thing is, you're not the first person who this has occurred to, Joe. <laughs> no, in fact, uh, there have been entire government agencies dedicated to trying to figure out uh, if we could create a nuclear-powered aircraft, for example. Uh, yeah, weirdos in the Air Force asked this question <laughs> way back in 1946. Yeah, so, so you know, embrace your fellow weirdos. Uh, yeah, this this was... Uh, <laughs> come from a long line and a proud history of <laughs> yes. total weirdos. So in, in 1946, the U.S. Army Air Forces, which would later just be called the Air Force, created the Nuclear Energy for the Propulsion of Aircraft, NEPA. Eventually, that would be replaced by a different uh, acronym <laughs> program called Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion, or, or just uh, A&P. And they were looking at the potential of using nuclear power to generate enough electricity to power an aircraft, keep it in the air, uh, specifically for military purposes. So... This was during the the era of the post-World War II entering into the Cold War era. We're having the capability of keeping an aircraft in flight perpetually in case you needed to, I don't know, drop bombs on your enemy was of uh, a very high priority at the time. So this was predating the intercontinental ballistic missile, right? Mm -hmm. You So people were still very much concerned about the possibility of using bombers instead of missiles. And uh, the program ended up eventually converting two Convair B-36 aircraft, which were hybrid uh, prop jet engine aircraft bombers. All right. So mm -hmm. these these were pre-existing aircraft that had been in use already and then said, well, why don't we go ahead and try and convert one of these to see if it could carry a nuclear reactor and uh, do so safely. So this was just a test platform. It wasn't the nuclear reactor was not. In a, if you think of it this way, it wasn't hooked up to anything. It wasn't powering the plane's systems, mm -hmm. but it was an air cooled nuclear reactor that was put in the bombing bay of these two different Convair B-36 aircraft and operated to see if it would, in fact, be safe. And there they, they had to obviously drastically alter the aircraft to make certain that the crew would remain safe. And they were shielded by uh, 12 tons of lead and rubber huh. between them and the reactor. Wow. Uh, and uh, by the way, this particular type of aircraft is uh, also known as the Peacemaker because... Of course it is. Because war is peace. Exactly. Uh, right. You might just refer back to our Double Think episode. Uh, it made 47 test flights uh, over Texas, mainly. And ultimately, they decided to not incorporate this as a full design, mainly because the engines that they were using had evolved to a point where it was no longer practical to use that particular approach. 
So it was abandoned largely because the surrounding technology of aircraft had gone further while they were still testing out the the viability of having a nuclear reactor on board an aircraft. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I believe back on tech stuff a long time ago, you and I did a, a Lockheed Martin uh, series, like two or three episodes that yeah. talked a lot about the advances that were going on in jet engines in that era. Exactly. And, yeah. and there was a lot of them. Yeah. Go figure. Like, after World War II, people were really interested in it. Ram jets and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. But of course, as we alluded to, there are some both obvious reasons and perhaps less than obvious reasons why we don't really have nuclear powered airplanes today. And we'll get to the obvious one first. Safety. Sure. I mean, what if a plane crashed and sprayed radioactive material all over the place? That would be very bad. And if it's military, then there's always the possibility it could be shot down. So it's not not just not just a mechanical failure, but you're talking about specifically placing some of these aircraft in harm's way because that is their purpose. Right. Yeah. What happens if there is a meltdown? Um what happens if it leaks uh, in some way? Like yeah. we've seen, uh, like a, it doesn't have to be a full meltdown for there to be some kind of leak of like water or steam, or like some Three kind Mile of Island, irradiated mm-hmm. material. Right. Yeah, and then of course there is the issue of passenger safety, like you were talking about in uh, in this other aircraft that had actually been created. You'd have to shield the people on the plane to protect yeah. them from what was happening in the reactor, yep. and I'm sure that that introduces problems for aircraft design. You typically don't want to be introducing lots of heavy materials like lead and stuff into your aircraft. Well, especially depending on what its purpose is. If it's for cargo, then you are impacting how much cargo you're going to be able to carry, right? Right. Because the heavier you make that aircraft, the more powerful it needs to be. And, and, you know, the design has to change. So when you get to a point where just the, the, the power system alone on the aircraft is that heavy... It starts creating uh, other other things you have to consider before you ever get to the point of actually loading the plane up and taking off. Yeah. And then, of course, on top of that, it's got the problems that just come with all nuclear power, right? Yeah. That you have it's regular this... stationary, non-flying nuclear <laughs> engines. Yeah. Right. You end up with <laughs> this uh, with this hazardous material that you have to find some way of dealing with and hoping that nobody gets into it for 10,000 years. Yeah, we talked about that in previous episodes. And that is, I mean, that's that's a non-trivial problem. Right. The solutions of nuclear power where you have lower carbon footprint or non-existent carbon footprint, depending upon the implementation and the fact that you don't have to refuel, uh, all those sort of things are fantastic. But the downside of having where do you put the spent fuel that still is very potentially dangerous is a big issue. And it's one that that governments have not fully agreed upon yet. There have been a lot of uh, of uh uh, debates about what's the safest way of dealing with that. And, so, and really, the, the answer to that question is nobody knows. Yeah. So. Yeah. There may be it may be one of those situations where you're like, well, if if we decide that nuclear power, in fact, makes the most sense out of you know all the different op, uh, uh, arrangements that we could have, uh, we still have to figure out, like, what's the maybe the least bad option of dealing with nuclear waste. No one really wants to do deal with that problem. No, we're in a kind of like ongoing kick the can mode yeah, right now. Yeah. yeah. So kick the big old nuclear can. So so that is something that is obviously been a deterrent in developing nuclear powered vehicles. It's not the only one. Cost is a big one. Sure. Yeah, yeah, all of these problems that we're talking about are technically solvable. But at great expense. Yeah, really great expense. I mean, designing a nuclear reactor is not cheap. And then designing one specifically that will fit within a vehicle, also not cheap. Outfitting that vehicle so that it shields anyone from potential radiation, not cheap. So eventually you get to a point where the cost of the vehicle may be so high that from a financial perspective – it makes no sense to go with that as opposed to a more conventional style vehicle, whether it's an aircraft, a car, or whatever. Uh, so that's right, right. a big the, limiting the factor. The fact that you don't have to refuel for a hundred years is <laughs> balanced out by the fact that it took you more than a hundred times, for example, the the cost of what that fuel would have been in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. The other thing, I think one of you made this note, but I think it's a really good point. How do you, like, do the work? So you're talking about not just carrying a nuclear reactor on board, 
but somehow using the the energy created by that reactor to do mechanical work like spin a propeller blade. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that actually, you know, when I was a kid, I just thought, oh, it's just you got the glowing pellet and you put the glowing pellet in this 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 chamber and then you close the door in the chamber and then the wheels move. <laughs> it like, you know, it just it didn't occur to me what is the actual process that we, you know, what is nuclear power doing that allows us to generate electricity or mechanical power and more often than not, this is not the only way, but it's the main way. We're talking about nuclear fission where uh you're having atoms split up and uh and p- those particles end up going on to create more nuclear reactions within the f- a fuel rod that generates a lot of heat that heat ends up superheating water converting it to steam which then turns turbines so you've got like a super powered steam engine is what it <laughs> yeah, comes down yeah. to really at its core you are harnessing the power of the heavens in order to get a steam engine yeah you're just yeah, everything that. But uh, it's a. I mean, it's, it's one a, heck of a steam. Oh it yeah, is yeah. Extremely efficient. Yeah. So you know, those turbines are what, generally speaking, generate electricity or mechanical motion to turn a propeller, that sort of thing. Uh, that's not the only way. We will talk about some other ways that you can, not necessarily you, but that we can use nuclear power to generate uh, electricity in order to do work that mm-hmm. is not directly related to nuclear fission. But that's the that's probably the most um, common way. Well, let's get away from my uh, my nuclear plane fantasy and ground <laughs> this podcast in some reality first. And sure. we will talk about some more wacky stuff toward the end. But there actually are vehicles right now that use nuclear power. They exist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, like, and they, they exist for good reason. Yeah. Well, one big example, of course, is nuclear submarines. Yeah. Have you ever seen The Hunt for Red October? Oh, I mean, so many times. Well, you know, th- there is the scene where they have what they believe to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. About Most Alec Baldwin. Don't react well to bullish. <laughs> you remember the scene in it where suddenly they have radiation leaking, or at yes. least they say they do, and they yes. have to evacuate. They have to ha- uh, vent with the outside air and have the crew come outside and, and stand on top of the submarine up yep. in the ocean. Um, I mean, that's a real concern because these submarines have nuclear reactors inside them. Yeah. Uh, first, we should stress not all submarines are nuclear powered. Um, Certainly not. And not not all Navy vessels are nuclear powered, but a lot of them are. And uh, when you when you think about the reasons, it makes sense. Like a a submarine's purpose uh, for the military anyway, is it's a it's kind of a stealth vehicle, right? It's able to pass underneath um, and to be used in in various uh, military applications, including warfare. And. You want to limit the number of times you need to surface in order to preserve the safety of that vehicle and its crew. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the upside down version of my never landing zombie escape plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So the nuclear uh, reactors aboard submarines allow for the generation of electricity and the propulsion of the submarine so that you don't have to surface unless you need to resupply or, uh, you know, the, a tour of duty or whatever is over. So during the Cold War, the United States was looking at developing this technology because before they were all diesel powered submarines. So they would eventually have to resurface to refuel and then they could go back down again. Uh, so they started looking at developing nuclear propulsion systems specifically for submarines. And the first one was the USS Nautilus, uh, which was launched in 1955. Uh, it was also the first submarine to, uh, to, to, reach the North Pole ah. underwater. Interesting. Obviously. I mean, you wouldn't think it would fly over the North Pole. It's a submarine. But uh I don't know, they get some great airtime. Yeah, they can, you know, if you've seen if you've seen uh, Hunt for October again, the captain has forced them out of the water. Um <laughs> in the early 1960s, we started seeing other navy vessels uh use nuclear fission to propo- to power propulsion. Uh the first aircraft carrier to do so was the USS Enterprise. Uh, which was actually the second Enterprise. Um, and if you want to hear more about that, uh, Scott Benjamin and I did an episode of Tech Stuff on how aircraft carriers work. Oh, cool. And we talked about the the transition from the traditional steam-powered submarine uh, – aircraft carriers, I should say, to the nuclear-powered ones. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, another benefit of putting this type of engine on a submarine is that uh, it's, it's real easy to cool – 
nuclear engines using water. Yeah. yeah. That is, in fact, how many nuclear power plants cool their reactors. Yeah. Right. You, you'll often see a nuclear power plant right next to a body of water. And right. submarines are in the water. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. It's it, it, So the naval reactors use very similar methodology to the power plants that you would see on land. It, uh, you know, you have a nuclear core. Um, you've got uh, nuclear rods that are able to once once you initiate a nuclear reaction, they're able to sustain it. You have some material that can absorb uh, neutrons. That's one of the things that are given off in nuclear reactions. So you put the absorbing material down to help dampen the reaction. That's what allows you to have a controlled reaction as opposed to an uncontrolled reaction. Which and, is bad. Yeah. Uncontrolled reaction is essentially an atomic bomb. That's what you get with an uncontrolled reaction. So this allows to prevent things like a meltdown. It, it, uh, and then the water it cools the system as well. And plus the water gets superheated. Uh, it remains in pressurized lines. So because the lines are pressurized, it keeps the, the water under such pressure that it doesn't boil off into steam. It stays in liquid form, but it's superheated. It then goes to an area where it will be able to turn turbines. At that point, it's allowed to expand. So the pressure is removed. That means it immediately boils off into steam, very high powered steam, turns these turbines. Now the turbines may only be used to generate electricity. Or they might do two things. They might generate electricity and they might have a gearbox associated with them that can translate the, the rotation of the turbines into a rotational force for the actual propellers. Oh, so it skips the middleman. Yeah. So you could have, you know, some vessels use essentially a giant electrical motors to turn the propellers and then you just generate the electricity with the nuclear power. And some have this combination where you're generating electricity for the ship, but you're also generating mechanical en en uh, energy for the propellers. Hmm. Uh, it's pretty neat. So those are the vehicles that use nuclear power right now as propulsion systems. And again, some, you know, it's not that every nation uses this, but many do. So it's not uh, it's not rare. <laughs> what I want to know is when I can get a nuclear powered luxury sedan. Uh, well, you know, there's there have been some some talk about nuclear powered cars. There's been talk. Yeah, sure. Some, uh, some of it's just the, talk. The, the, oh, the, of course. The practical, the practical answer to your question is never. Yeah. Um, well, sorry. This, sorry, Joe. This was the thing that w when I had this harebrained idea for an episode, this was the thing that made me say, OK, well, we have to do this because I looked it up and I was like, oh, Somebody thought it would be funny to actually design a Ford concept car with a nuclear propulsion system. <laughs> yeah. Well, not just funny, but but an effective marketing tool for the Ford Motor Company. Right. I got to right. say, that thing looked like a major boat. I mean, it would have been. Oh, man. No, it looks <laughs> Can you so imagine cool. Oh, no. I, parallel I, it like, parking in it. I'm, it looks like a like, it looks like the Batmobile if the Batmobile had been designed for George Jetson. It's I, gorgeous. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with the design. I love the design. I just think. Yeah, finding a parking space for that thing would be a nightmare. <laughs> we are talking about the Ford Nucleon. The yeah. Ford Nucleon. Okay, so first things first, it should come as no surprise to anyone that this car was never actually built. No, it was a it concept, was a concept. Car. It never yeah. made it out of the three-eighths uh, size model but stage. Yeah. What was the deal with this concept? So, car? well, it's a little, little complicated in the sense that, you know, it was such a concept that they didn't really define a lot of things. It was supposed to be nuclear powered. Um, and they said that you could drive 5,000 miles, which is more than 8,000 kilometers before needing to refuel or recharge, uh, which is interesting. I mean, actually, according to Stanford University, if you really had a nuclear powered car, you might be able to go between three to five years before you ever needed to refuel, which sounds pretty nice, really. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you still have radioactivity. You still have to shield everybody from the, the nuclear uh, core itself. So that would end up adding a lot of weight to your car. So your car would be incredibly heavy. Um, possibly so heavy that you would have to worry about certain elements of infrastructure, like old bridges, oh, <laughs> things huh. like that, things that you might not want to, you know, you might not otherwise consider because you'd be, you'd be in a car that might not seem that big, but it'd be really heavy. And, but it could potentially outweigh like your giant Mack trucks. Or at least be on an, a, a, an equivalent weight. And also, mm -hmm. I mean, with that weight comes problems with momentum, right? I mean, if you're traveling at a certain speed and your car is a certain weight, then your brakes need to be <laughs> extra good. Right. You know, there's Ooh. some problems there. Certainly. Uh, but yeah, the, like, like Lauren was saying, 
they never they never built a full one and they never really defined how the nuclear power worked. Uh yeah, since they never really intended for it to be a production car, it, it was really just a just a concept published in a brochure in 1958 or so. Uh they weren't even interested in the sticky details of whether this thing would be powered by nuclear fission or nuclear fusion. They were kind of like, yeah, you <laughs> yeah. know, whatever, whatever scientists want to come up with. The power of the atom. Right, totally. Uh, the last line of the brochure is, is such a kicker. It said, and I quote, Cars such as the Nucleon illustrate the extent to which research into the future is conducted at Ford Motor Company and point up the designer's unwillingness to admit that a thing cannot be done simply because it has not been done. Right. Yeah, so this this is right there in the smack dab middle of the the atomic age where where atomic was going to be considered the solution to all our problems energy and otherwise oh well, yeah it was it was also that that crazy 1950s car boom where sure. everyone in america was buying 98 different cars so that they could have so much freedom of course it was also right in the middle of when every movie plot was well there's a regular animal that's been made into a giant dangerous animal because of nuclear atomic radiation right yeah yeah there was there was a not a consensus on the matter as it turns out in pr <laughs> terms uh also uh you know it, it, i think they talked about it just being like it would be powered by a, a an atomic pellet that's about as close as they got to explaining how it was working so you know, it, with, since this was such a concept, when you when you talk about a concept car, you can't get much more conceptual than this very vague description. Uh, but the design is pretty pretty sweet. It was pretty sweet. Yeah. And you know, but so yes, I would posit that it is really just an artifact of the atomic age, and that no one would obviously take anything like that seriously outside of that contemporary culture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, clearly. Uh, we left all that behind in the 1950s, right? Uh, yeah, no, not at all. What? In, Wait, huh? What? In 2009 at the Chicago Auto Show, GM via Cadillac presented a concept car that looked uh, like a Ford Nucleon designed for modern Batman. No. Oh, actually. Wow. Uh, <laughs> this no, was, no George Jetson in this version. No George Jetson in this one. No, sorry. Uh, yeah, this is the Cadillac World Thorium Fuel. I'm looking at a picture of this now. So, so. What? So, so the so the nuclear engine idea here had been updated to a proposal for a thorium-based system, which we've talked about previously on the show, not for cars, uh, but but you can check out our full episode on it from March twenty first, two thousand fourteen, if you would like. But basically, so thorium is a radioactive material that's more abundant than uranium and has a greater energy yield, possibly two hundred times greater, and it's hypothetically safer than a uranium reactor because it won't melt down when you lose power. The process just stops naturally. You're right. So you don't have to worry about lowering that that material I was talking about that soaks up those neutrons. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, and the materials and byproducts are not quite as easy to weapon to weaponize mm. as a normal uranium reactor. The the design for this concept car from Cadillac was done by one Lauren Klesis, who created it with the idea that it could go largely without maintenance for a hundred years. Wow. Uh, which seems just optimistic to me. Uh, this was partially due to having backup systems for everything in case of failure. I think the engine itself was the only thing that didn't have a, a primary backup. And this is my favorite part. It included these these really like weird looking deep well wheels that actually consisted of six mini wheels, each powered by its own induction motor. So you never have to change the tires, only take them in for realignment every five years or so. I'm looking wow. at this picture. I can't imagine it having that many backup systems because this thing in certain areas looks like it's paper thin. <laughs> I don't know. I So I don't know. You know, e even though even though Kalesis thought the idea through maybe a little bit more than the Nucleon designers, GM was not really planning on taking the concept any further. Uh, t Top Gear nicknamed the concept the Cadillac WTF. <laughs> uh, which, to be fair, is the acronym. Classic Top Gear. Uh-huh. So, you know, again, like, who would possibly try to make a thorium engine? No one would actually be working on that. You I sense that you're going to say they are. Yeah, no, someone's totally working on that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Charles Stevens with the Massachusetts, Connecticut R&D firm Laser Power Systems around 2011 started hyping 
this model of a thorium-based motor that they had been developing. They, the, the, the concept is this. You use the thorium to create a laser, to create steam, to turn a turbine, to generate electricity, to power a vehicle. So this is a steam-powered car using a thorium laser to, to generate the steam? Yes. Wow. This, so Dr. Evil drives this car is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> and, and Charles Stevens, who's, who's the CEO of this company, said that it would weigh about 500 pounds, which is the approximate weight of a regular old car engine. So that checks out. And could he said that it could run on eight grams of thorium for about 100 years, a.k.a. some 300,000 miles. <laughs> Hmm. According to their website, they're working on scaling the system, uh, which, by the way, they call the Max V Laser. I think I'm saying that right. Wow. Max V Laser. Max V Laser. Uh, for use in all kinds of vehicles, uh, you know, boats and airplanes and spaceships and et cetera, and also for powering homes and businesses. Huh. Uh, well, I mean, of course, the idea of some sort of thorium based power for homes and businesses is not unusual. No, that's the more common way of thinking about thorium-fueled reactors. Sure. Where do we stand on this? Well, uh, Digital Trends reached out to Laser Power Systems back in 2014, and they responded that Stevens didn't, and I quote, have time to comment. Wow, that's how busy that cat is, huh? But uh, Laser Power Systems is still soliciting to investors through their website to help them create and test their designs for the system. Well, of course so. they are, yeah. I mean, he's not too, too busy to accept money. Right? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll have to register my skepticism not knowing that much more about it but i mean at least it sounds interesting yeah I'd like to read more about that I, I don't know that i don't know that the uh the proposed system is implausible i do wonder more again i mean we still have some of the same issues that we have with the other examples we've talked about about you know you you do have to still we are still talking about radiation we are still talking oh, about the yeah. need for shielding and all that kind of stuff so um you know it's it's the question I have ultimately is, assuming that actually goes forward, what will the law have to say? But we're still not there yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. W way back from the law needing to worry about it. Is it legal to possess enriched uranium in the trunk of your car? Are you asking for a reason? No, I mean, because <laughs> like, if you're about to tell me that we need to go and unload your car, I'm going to say I am not going there. <laughs> I'd have to check, but I suspect not. I consider y'all friends, but y'all aren't those friends for me. I've got other friends I call to help dispose of my enriched uranium. That's fair. Thank you, Joe. OK, but while these uh, concept cars are not a real thing and maybe we shouldn't ever expect them to be a real thing uh -huh. nuclear powered rolling vehicles there are actually nuclear powered rolling vehicles just not so much on planet earth <laughs> are you referring and, to the curiosity rover well yeah and just generally the idea of using some form of nuclear based propulsion in space vehicles right oh sure because that's really clever because, again, like you can't there's no gas stations on Mars right. that we've found. No. And if you're sending a probe out to the deep reaches of space, there aren't any rest stops. So that we found that we found. Right. So I remember back in the day, uh, I think years ago, we were recording a podcast about the Curiosity rover and I made a mistake. I just assumed I was like, OK, well, it's powered by solar panels like all, you know, like rovers are. Mm hmm. Uh, but then I was like, better check that. And I went back and checked it out. Turns out that was not true. Yeah. It was powered by it, – it has a nuclear-based power source. But it's not like the nuclear reactors that power our homes. Right. It's not based on fission. It's based on just radioactive decay. Uh, so you can think of it kind of like a battery, a nuclear battery. Uh, it, it's five kilograms in mass or about 10 pounds in weight. Uh, and it is uh, consists of plutonium-238. One of my favorite plutonium it's isotopes. absolutely lovely, isn't it? Is it not? Mm -hmm. So dreamy. Uh, and it uses what's called a thermocouple, which is something that you will find in a lot of electronics here on Earth, specifically digital thermometers. Uh, and its principle is pretty cool. So you take two different metals, all right, and you join them in a couple different places. And the difference in temperature from one joining to another creates voltage, which is a difference in charge. 
Difference in charge means electrons can flow. You can create a current. Now, with digital thermometers, we use this to uh, to ind- indicate what the temperature is in a room. So the te- temperature difference between uh, the two joints ends up creating this voltage, electricity flows, and the amount of electricity that flows indicates what the temperature is, which is told to you in a little digital readout. Because clearly, uh, just saying it's this much electricity would be meaningless to us, but it would end up translating that into saying it is 72 degrees in this room. I'm using the example in it our is, room. It is four pies hot. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, a thermocouple is used in the Curiosity rover as well. So the plutonium-238 ends up generating heat. Mm-hmm. And that heat is used to heat the one of the joints on the thermocouple, and the other one is unheated so that you get this difference in heat that creates the voltage, which then allows electricity to flow, which allows the uh, this nuclear battery to provide electricity to the Curiosity rover system. And it's called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or RTG. Right. And it's not just the Curiosity rover that has used this as a power source for space. Right. In fact, we've used this since the Apollo program. Uh, we've used it uh, also on things like um, the Voyager probes. But uh, mm-hmm. on, in the case of Apollo, it was not the device that created electricity for the actual capsule. Uh, this is still dealing with a, a radioactive material that is decaying over time. It was used, however, on the moon's surface. So, you know, uh, Apollo's uh, 12 through 17, they had lunar landers mm-hmm. that were designed to uh, to create operations on, on the moon. They used RTGs to generate the electricity they needed for the experiments they did on the moon's surface, as well as the lunar rovers, I believe, uh, to charge them. So uh, out of all the ones that we created for the Apollo program, five of them are on the surface of the moon. One of them is in the Pacific. And that's thanks to Apollo 13. So if Tom Hanks never made that movie, we wouldn't have had the RTG. In the Actually, I don't think it works that way. Thanks, Tom Hanks. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for all the science. Uh, Somebody at the bottom of the Pacific is enjoying a plutonium snack at this very moment. Yeah. Have you seen The Host? I think this is how it starts. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. At any rate, no, no. <laughs> I'm, obviously, I, I am making light of what was really a very serious situation. It I mean, was. Yeah. RTGs, clearly, like, again, you've got plutonium there. There is a concern. In fact, there were a lot of concerns about using RTGs in the space program, specifically because there was a fear that if there were a launch issue, then you could potentially spread a radioactive material over a very large space, depending upon how high in the altitude you were when that problem happened. Sure, it's similar to the one of the concerns about flying a plane with a nuclear reactor. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, we have still used RTGs, uh, including uh, the Huygens probe, which was sent to Titan, uh, Saturn's moon Titan. I did an episode of Forward Thinking about that, where we talked about what the Huygens probe did and the images that it sent back. Uh, The Cassini-Huygens probe used an RTG for its electrical power. So it's something that is still being used. And again, it's using radioactive decay, not the process of fission in order to generate that power. So it's very different. Right. So these RTGs are going to be great to do something like drive around and power electronics on the Curiosity rover. But you probably wouldn't use something like this for a vehicle here on Earth. Probably not. I mean, you are still talking about radiation again. Yeah. Uh, that's an issue. Also, radioactive decay over time is like you, you have a certain amount of radioactive material, right? As it decays, less of that is going to decay, uh, thus giving you the ability to create electricity, however, whatever method you're, you're planning on using. Uh, and... The decay itself, we've talked about this, you know, we talk about truly random. So the decay itself is something that is not necessarily going to be consistent over the entire lifetime of the nuclear battery or whatever you want to call it. So for a vehicle, it's not necessarily going to produce enough electricity to power something like a spacecraft uh, for uh, an, an indefinite amount of time. Uh, nor is it going to be something that's always going to be dependable. And if you think it, your car is undependable now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a long, slow burn of of uh, it's it's Schrodinger's engine, whether or not yeah. your car is going to turn <laughs> right. every morning. I sure. don't. Who <laughs> who knows if it's decayed enough for me to it'll drive? I don't know. <laughs> OK, yeah. I've got a crazier and dumber idea. Yeah, okay. I can't wait to hear it. What if we just basically use nuclear bombs to sort of push us through space. Well, you know, Joe, you say that's a crazy idea, as if you were the first person to have it. I know I'm not. No. uh, (laughs) 
This was something, and, and it's funny because just before we started recording this, we were chatting with, uh, Joe and I were chatting with Jason, who's our, our, kind of our head honcho here at How Stuff Works. And we were talking about a particular project called Project Orion, uh, which before it was Project Orion was just this crazy idea some guys had about, you know, atomic reactions create, there's so much energy associated with them, right? I mean, you see an atomic bomb, you realize that's a, an enormous amount of energy that's released. Um, and we talk about that being like the uncontrolled release of energy from an atomic reaction, uh, fission specifically in that case. Well, also you could do it with fusion, like a hydrogen bomb. And there were some folks uh, who were looking at hydrogen bombs and thinking, so much energy is being released. What if there were a way for us to harness that, not in a reactor, but to actually use that to propel something? Uh, one of these guys, his name was uh, Theodore Taylor, who had worked on weapons programs at Los Alamos. And uh, he, along with several other physicists, started looking at the possibility of using hydrogen-based explosions to propel a spacecraft into space. We call it Project Orion. This, this was an idea that was brought under the auspices of DARPA, which was ARPA at the time, um, in the 1950s. And essentially, the idea was that you would uh, drop behind you a, a pellet of some sort uh, and a hydrogen bomb. The bomb explodes. It uh, ends up plasmifying the pellet and the combination ends up propelling you further along your path. They called it pulse propulsion, nuclear, nuclear pulse. pulse propulsion, meaning we're talking a series of hydrogen bombs. Not not you drop not, one not bomb. One. No. Sure. Like a whole bunch. Yeah. No, I've seen geeks on the Internet uh, discussing this as one potential way to get a spacecraft to keep accelerating toward the speed of light as you, you have nuclear pulse pr- propulsion yeah. continually blowing up behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, clearly, this would be a dangerous thing to uh, for liftoff. Um, <laughs> you know, but if you were using, I don't know, chemical rockets to get into orbit and then switch to this method of propulsion, that would be one thing. Uh, if you that, were using, that would be one dangerous thing. Yeah, uh, that, I, yeah. I guess less dangerous than an actual nuclear explosion on the planet's surface. But yeah, um, so yeah, that I mean, it is an interesting idea that. No one has really pursued since that time. But there were people, I mean, like top scientists really working on the potential of using this as a means of getting getting into space. Well, well this, this again was in the middle of that atomic age where everyone was like, yes. Yeah. Uh, then again, I don't know. I don't know if this has necessarily been discredited as a future potential propulsion system. I mean, it's well, the only thing I would imagine it being uh discredited would be in the sense of arms treaties yeah. because you would have to build oh, yeah. huge numbers of hydrogen bombs as your propulsion system. Meanwhile, the That's rest of the world good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. The rest yeah. of the world has to sit there and say, Oh, it's fine for you to build a, an arsenal of hydrogen bombs that could destroy the world three times over. Cause you're just going to Mars. Uh, sure. And th- there's also, I'm pretty sure international laws against uh, putting hydrogen bombs in space. Oh, sure. Yeah. The weaponization of space is completely against the rules. Yeah. There was a space treaty. Weapons of mass destruction are not allowed in space. Uh, let alone a whole bunch of them. Yeah. So I, I think that for I mean, I mean, also just just the material science of, of trying to build out a spaceship that could withstand multiple hydrogen bombs going off right behind it into perpetuity. Sounds difficult to me. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, I'm sure like 20 to 40 years we'll have it worked out. It also but. makes me think like one of the one of the byproducts of of atomic explosions tends to be an electromagnetic pulse, which generally speaking is not good for electronics. So I'm curious as to how that gets avoided too. Uh, nanobots. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but how about a different version? How about the thermal nuclear drive? It's another proposed method of propulsion using nuclear power. Right. Well, this would be using nuclear reactions to generate heat. Yeah. To trigger a reaction engine, right? Essentially, you are uh, superheating a gas. Yeah. And then you have a nozzle 
that that allows you to exhaust that superheated gas. Uh, you know, by superheating it, you are uh, increasing its volume, right? But mm-hmm. if you have it pressurized so it can't increase beyond the confines of it, the pressurization increases, increases. You open up a nozzle, it allows the gas to escape. It creates an opposite uh, force on the, you know, in the opposite direction, equal but opposite reaction type deal. Like a fire extin- extinguisher in a cartoon. Yep, exactly. And then you just, you know, you, you, you go super fast. This That's was, actually the technical term, it actually is. It's it's very difficult to spell. There's like a P and like 14 S's. Um, so the the information I've read has suggested that this approach, which, by the way, would still be using nuclear fission for the actual reaction. So you'd have a nuclear reactor the way you would on a power plant here on Earth, except obviously designed for a spacecraft. Um, but it would be, in theory, uh, twice the it would give you twice the performance of chemical rockets. However, it would also necessitate a much heavier um, spacecraft because you would have to have all the things we talked about before the shielding and uh, the nuclear uh, um, fuel itself and also the, the gas that you're going to be using as the propellant. All of that would still be a uh, consideration. But the U.S. began exploring use of nuclear propulsion for spacecraft on, in the 1950s. They formed the uh, Nuclear Engine for Rocket Vehicle Application, called also called NERVA, to explore the possibilities. And they proved the feasibility of such a propulsion system. There was even talk of using it in a manned mission to Mars back in the 70s, but it never very, it never went very far. By then, the space race was starting to wind down. People had essentially said, we've proven what we need to prove. Congress was cutting funding. So uh, programs were being canceled. And this was one of the ones that got canceled. But I had heard some interesting stories about how using this, we could get to Mars much faster than if we were using traditional chemical rockets, like within three months instead of eight. Oh, wow. Which is, hmm. you know, pretty, pretty significant. Um, and, and by that significance, it also means that you expose astronauts to to radiation for much less time. Except for the radiation that they're being exposed to from the vehicle itself. That's a fair point. I was thinking specifically cosmic radiation, but sure. your terrestrial radiation is still a very fair concern. <laughs> But yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, maybe in the future will be explored again. But anytime we get to nuclear propulsion, there's also always the concern about could that be used for other purposes? Oh, sure, sure. And and actually, I'm sure that if you were shielding a nuclear propulsed, I'm just going to verb that now. Yeah, totally. uh, A vehicle like that, you would come up with really great shielding for cosmic radiation as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean. Uh, we're talking about protecting ourselves against very high energy particles, whether it's from, you know, the, the, again, a radiation from uh, a nuclear reactor or cosmic sources. Uh, there are some other means of generating electricity using, uh, nuclear processes that don't require you to undergo fission. Uh, there are these things, things that are in development called nuclear batteries. Uh, not like the one on the Curiosity rover. That's a slightly different approach. But okay. they, they again, would also generate electricity through radioactive decay. But we're talking about uh, harnessing beta particles, which are kind of mid-powered, essentially electrons. They have a negative charge. Uh, they have very little mass. But they are expelled from the nucleus of uh, radioactive isotopes. Yeah, so like in beta decay, for example, when uh, carbon-14 decays back into nitrogen-14, it has beta decay. It ejects a beta particle, and then suddenly it's got uh, one more proton inside the nucleus. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you can use all sorts of different isotopes, including things like uh, heavy hydrogen, as in hydrogen-3. There's a couple different versions of heavy hydrogen, but this is specifically hydrogen-3 we're talking about. And if you harness those using semiconductors, then you can actually use that as a source for electricity. But similar to what we were talking about before, since you're depending on radioactive decay, it could be too slow to provide the electricity needed to power a vehicle. However, this might be something that eventually ends up recharging your cell phone without you needing to plug your phone in. Like your phone is constantly charging using uh, a nuclear battery that could just be generating enough electricity to recharge your your traditional battery to keep your phone going. So you never have to plug it in. Like you, your phone, your phone's battery would essentially last as long as you wanted to use that phone. 
keeping in mind that most of us end up upgrading our phones after a few years anyway. Uh, for me, that is worth putting a nuclear thing on my face. <laughs> yeah. Just hold it right up to your brain pan. That's yeah. that's where I like to put nuclear things. Well, they always said I had the brain pan of a stagecoach tilter. <laughs> is is that what they always say? Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, let's <laughs> let's take one uh, uh, look at another possible use of nuclear power. Uh, yeah, we have been talking all of this time about uh, uh, radioactive decomposition right. and also fission. Right. Yeah, the only time we mentioned fusion at all was using hydrogen bombs to propel a spacecraft. But what about fusion reactors? We've we've mentioned that. What about that. them? <laughs> They're, okay, so this is one of those things that, you know. We, do we have them yet? Kind of, yes. Yes, we do have well, fusion reactors. Do we have good they, ones yet? Okay, all and, right. And that's the thing. We've done entire episodes about this, and they do work, just yeah. not efficiently at all. Right, like, right. Like, it takes more energy to make them go than you get out of them. Right, or if you, if you are able to get enough energy out where it's equivalent or more than the energy you put in, it still only consumes a tiny percentage of the fuel, which means you end up with a bunch of unused fuel at the end of your reaction, and it's not—it's still not efficient. You're you're getting more energy out than you're putting in, but you're not you're not using efficient use of the fuel itself. Uh, so we've seen some very dramatic uh, improvements in the technology because for the longest time, it was like you would pour in a hundred percent energy and get 60% back from the reaction. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that's not going to be sustainable. You're just, it's an energy loss at that point. <laughs> right, right, right. It's not an engine so much as it is an interesting science experiment. It's, it's a sinkhole is what it is. <laughs> uh, but we've gotten much better about that. So fusion could actually be far more um, powerful than chemical rockets, fusion-powered rockets. Uh, you would be, like the name sounds, you fuse two nucleuses together to create a new one. And in the process, that releases a lot of energy. Um, and it could potentially make things like a trip to Mars take much less time than what it does now. So we talked about this when the Curiosity was sent to Mars. It, it took about eight months, I think from the point where it launched to the point where it's set down on Mars. And that's because, again, we have to wait for the ideal amount of time where Earth and Mars are going to be close to being in alignment. Share the best window. And then, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a rover. It's not traveling at the speed of light. It's traveling at the speed of rover. So. Right, right. So and then if we want to send people there, the big concern was that, well, they're going to have to wait for two years before we get to that point where the Earth and Mars are getting close together again because uh, we won't have enough fuel to send them there and then have them come back and have that trip last a really long time. We have to make the best use of physics in order to conserve fuel and give them a chance to to get there and get back. But we've mentioned this before. Mars is totally trying to kill you. Mars is not a nice place. It is not going to be a, a cakewalk for anyone who goes there. So you don't really want people to spend a long time there if you can prevent it. So one of the possibilities is using fusion-based rockets, which could get you to Mars in around three months. In fact, the the uh, the estimation I saw was that a proposed mission would take 87 days to get to Mars. You could spend 30 days on Mars, and then it would take it would be like a 93-day trip back to Earth. So you would end up having much less exposure to things like cosmic radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, at least during the trip. <laughs> Once you're on the surface of Mars, you got to figure out something there. But on the trip there, you would be, uh, you would spend less time in space. Therefore, you would have less of a risk of being exposed to things like cosmic radiation, which is bad news. Um, so interesting proposal. It would, uh, be fusing things like, um, the two different versions of heavy hydrogen, uh, deuterium and tritium, the, so hydrogen two and hydrogen three, in other words. And that would create a plasma. So you get these bubbles that are in this plasma. And this is the, the super weird way that I, I think is fascinating, uh, weird way to actually create uh, fusion. You get these bubbles in the plasma. Mm -hmm. You then capture the bubbles. You surround them with metal rings. And you use a magnetic field to compress that bubble. Huh. And the magnetic field is powerful enough to compress that bubble to the point where fusion takes place. The release of the energy from fusion is so great that it vaporizes the metal that has surrounded that bubble. 
And that metal is then, that vaporized metal is then released in, in a nozzle to create the propulsion that pushes the spacecraft forward, which is kind yeah. of crazy. Yeah, va- vaporized metal as your uh, fire propellant. extinguisher yeah. can propellant. Exactly. Sure. Okay. Well, it makes me think it's kind of like a, a super souped up version of what the cylinders in a car engine do. Like they compress sure. the gas until yeah. it ignites, uh, except now we're... We're talking about a, a different level of ignition. Here. Well, and, and a little bit warmer. Another in there, interesting yeah. point is that when you get to the, the moment where that compressed gas ignites within a cylinder, typically you're talking about a temperature that's higher than the melting point of the engine of your car. But because it happens so quickly, it's such a short amount of time that it is that temperature. It's not enough to actually melt anything. That's the same principle of this fusion approach. Like, yeah, we don't have anything on Earth that would withstand the temperatures we're talking about, but it happens so quickly. But it doesn't need to. Don't worry about it. Put it inside a Twinkie. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So there are other uh, other ways to create fusion rockets that would that would uh, propel the spacecraft in a, in a way different than the metal rings being vaporized and then ejected into space method I just talked about. But they didn't sound as science fiction awesome crazy as the <laughs> me- method I described. So that was the one I focused on. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got to have you got to have your standards. So. Oh, you know, we didn't even mention, I don't think, icebreakers. No. I think icebreakers are cool. That uh, I mean, I don't have the research sitting in front of me, so Wait, it w- are, wouldn't make sense to talk about it. Are you it, talking but... about gatherings where like a bunch of people get together and then just kind of try and have casual conversation in a very forced environment? You know very well what I'm talking about, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, ships that probe the icy reaches of the poles when mm. they have to – They've got to pound through some ice because that stuff gets thick. Yeah. Uh, so how do they generate enough thrust to crack the ice shelf and move through it? Well, they have these nuclear-powered engines. I don't think all of them do, but some of them no. do. Certainly the one that, that found Frankenstein's monster didn't. <laughs> Obviously. No. But, uh, yeah, yeah. That there are some other, you know, vehicles that are similar to that. We're largely talking naval vehicles whether we ever see any other vehicles that that rely heavily upon nuclear power uh i'm a little i'm more than a little skeptical i mean it may end up being that you could argue there are going to be plenty of vehicles that will be indirectly powered by nuclear power in the sense that nuclear power will generate the electricity and you plug your car in sure yeah yeah when you when you think about it that way all I mean, many electric vehicles right now are nuclear powered. Right, right. But as for direct nuclear power, I am skeptical, but never say never. Well, if we want to go down that route, we could just say that all of our things are Big Bang powered. That's true. (laughs) Just go back, (laughs) go back far enough. Like, yeah, we're all related if you go back far enough. Uh, Eventually you have to, you have to sit there and say like, all right, for practical purposes for this conversation, we're going to have to just ignore that and <laughs> move sure. forward. Yeah. Uh I I agree. I'm I'm also kind of skeptical at least at least for the near future. I don't see how it could be uh, economically or or safely feasible to <laughs> I'm I'm so good at English words, you guys. I'm Yeah, <laughs> I it, have it, a degree in this. It would also uh, <laughs> be politically difficult. To, I mean, there's so oh, yeah, many yeah, different there's, barriers. There's a lot of barriers. Yeah. Um but but I can certainly envision a future a uh, hundred, two hundred years out wherein it becomes feasible due to material science and et cetera. Well, one day I'm going to live on a nuclear powered fan boat. And I'm going to dominate the swamps of southern Louisiana. Uh, I can't wait to hear about how you wrestled the great robo-gator and uh, claimed uh, dominance of all your domain. I I don't believe in your future, Joe, but I like it better than mine. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I want to hear about what our listeners have to say about this, about this or any other topic, really. Anything that you're, you wanted to hear more about, maybe you've heard... An episode that we've done in the past, you think that we need to do an update because here's the crazy thing about the future. It keeps coming and then turning into the present. And sometimes we get things totally right and sometimes we get things totally wrong. Uh, if you have anything you want us to revisit or you've just got a new topic that you would love us to talk about, you should get in touch with us. Let us know what that is. Send us an email. Our address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Facebook 
Google Plus or Twitter at Google Plus and Twitter. We are FW Thinking at Facebook. Just search FW Thinking. We'll pop right up. Leave us a message. Tell us what you think. And you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.